This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook. Today is July 3rd, 2022. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio. Uh, my name is Scott Cinnamon. I was at Hofstra from 1977 to 1981, and I came back for, uh, for a short stretch in a 1985-86 era. Uh, but that was only doing jazz shows when I um, ended up back in New York for a little bit. What shows or programs did you work on as a student at uh, Hofstra Radio? So keep in mind that um, my time in Hofstra overlapped with Sue Zizza. So um, she was, she is a force to be reckoned with mm-hmm. and um, just does tremendous work. So most of the production side was on her plate and most of the engineering side was mine to do. Um, and, you know, uh, so I worked on live remotes because I started my first job was remote operations chief after I had spent a year uh, working with Paul Buscemi, who was my first boss at Hofstra Radio. Um, and so I, I worked on remotes. I did the jazz show. I did, I, and the production thing that I did was a show called Learning About the Law. Mm-hmm. Um, selfishly at the time, because I, the, my career path turned out to be becoming a lawyer. So learning about the law from guys in Nassau County, uh, a little self-serving, but also educational for the general population. Um, so wait, before you go on, did you start that program or you just happened to work on it? No, we started that program. Oh, wow. Wow. So it, was it a student host or was it a professional host or a community volunteer? It was me. And then, well, no, that's not fair. It was not me as the host. That's not correct. Uh, we had the guy that was then, and I won't remember his name. I'm sorry. He was the president of the Nassau County Bar Association. And he would come every week with uh, topics to talk about and bring in guests. And he took care of that part. And we just gave him the studio and set him up. When I was producing that show, it was John Mann. Yep. That's the guy. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. Well, that's fun. Yeah. I didn't know that show had such a life after we were gone. I was, I left in 94 and I'm pretty sure he was still going. That's incredible. Yeah, I don't. I don't know when he might have stopped, uh, or if he stopped. I don't know, but <laughs> it's entirely possible. Knowing that guy, he'd still he'd still be going. Okay, that's very interesting. Okay, so so students came up with the idea for the program, and then John came in and and acted as the host, and then that led to you, you know, being a help for you going to law school eventually. I guess that's cool. Yep. Um, so what else did you work on as a student uh, at the station? So I um, worked on, I, I did a regular jazz shift and fell in love with jazz music as a result of mm. my time at Hofstra. Had the privilege of meeting Count Basie and Maynard Ferguson as a result wow. of this love of jazz and being hooked up with Hofstra. Uh, worked on the remotes, the sports remotes. Um, took my first plane ride on Hofstra's dime because we followed the basketball team wherever they went. And we were very lucky. Scheduling was the same 40 years ago, right? If your club had a good year, people wanted to play you, more elite teams. So 1976, I guess it would be, because coming into my years, we had people like 
Notre Dame, UCLA, Syracuse, and because our seniors graduated the year they did really well, um, we didn't win very much, but great trips, great trips. Um, so was that, and, was that the era of Butch Van Bredikoff? Was he the coach at that time? Or was that uh, a different time? I think that would have been a different time he was there. I think that's a different time. I, I would, I would, I saved some of the programs because we got to go to the house that Dean built and all, you know, the Dean Dome. Right. There, there was, there was a lot, there were a lot of places that we got to go see that I don't think we would have gotten to go see if Hofstra was just a mediocre team. But while we were there, I don't believe, well, of course it was a different time. So you had the, um, although most of it's the same, we had the, um, the playoffs that involved the division that you were in or the, the conference that you were in. And we never got out of that to make the NCAAs, but right. you know, all good fun. And um, I, I really, that was probably the most fun I had. I, I was uh, served color or play by play and sometimes just the engineer, depending on what the need was. Uh, what else did I do? And of course, you know, I had to start like everybody else as a continuity announcer. Mm-hmm which was a story by itself. The, uh, the chief announcer wasn't at the time, wasn't too pleased with my, uh, voice. And, um, so I was going to have to go take some training until I, I got better. But the funny thing was there was a basketball came up coming, a basketball game coming up where we did not have enough budget to take a full crew. So it came down to the fact they needed somebody that could engineer there more than they needed three announcers. So we had to bench one of the announcers and I got to go as a combo kind of guy. Oh. I was going to be part announcer and the engineer. And once that was done, um, Jeff kind of overrode the veto and I got to go. And then I was uh, approved as an announcer for the rest of time. Um, you know, that, that wasn't where my, fo- oh, well. I wanted to grow up and replace Marv Albert, but I'd have had to live a long time to fulfill that mission. So that that's um, the so, that's the dream for so many people who came to the station is you know to to follow in Marv's footsteps or, or any number of announcers. It's it's high goals, but yeah, yeah, yeah. And as soon as I realized that wasn't probably going to happen, I decided well maybe being an FCC lawyer or a lawyer that helps radio and TV stations would be the next best thing, and that's where I ended up. Very cool. So you mentioned you were the remote operations chief. What other positions did you hold at the station? Well, from remote operations chief, I got promoted to the chairman of the administrative board. I don't even know if they have that anymore, but that means I was the liaison uh, between all the department heads and the executive committee, which was the program manager, the station uh, program director, station manager, and general manager, Jeff. Mm Mm-hmm. So you got invited to be part of the little, part of a small meeting where you reported on how the station was doing with them and informed them of the wants and needs of the departments and they gave you news to bring back. And that was kind of cool. And then after that, I uh, became station manager and served there for two years while Sue was program director for two years. Very cool. Um, did you use your own name on the air or did you have a nickname? I thought with a name like Cinnamon, there was no sense in trying to cop a better stage name. So yeah, I used my own. It's a pretty good name. Um, uh, two-part question and answer it as you like, but what first brought you to Hofstra Radio? And then if you could paint a picture for us, 
what was the office like or what were the studios like or maybe people that you met at the station at the time? Well, we've heard several people discuss the um, physical nature of the setup at that time. Basement of the little theater, narrow concrete staircase down to the basement door, and the offices were up on the second floor. So my story was simple. I was shopping for a college where I could graduate with a dual major in communication arts and political science. So I had been to Syracuse and to Fordham and to a little place down in West Virginia and you know a bunch of other colleges. And then my day came to come to Hofstra in the first place I wanted to visit with my parents in tow, by the way, because we lived on Long Island. So uh, first place I wanted to visit was the radio station. So they sent us down to the basement of a little theater. We hit the door down there, knocked on the door, and the first face I ever saw was George Musgrave. He opened that door with that big, wide grin and said, hi, how can I help you guys? And uh, I told him who I was, and he invited us in, and that's my first tour of the radio station. Um, and I was kind of hooked. And I went to Hofstra because, this, I, I love this story, I was given a communications grant and aid, what they, and I was the first freshman to get one, apparently. So I was told Hmm. what they don't, what they didn't tell me at the time is your, the hours that you have to work to get the money from the grant and aid have to come from the television station. Radio doesn't count. So when we talk about the second class citizenry status of the radio station, it went that deep. So first year I was okay. I did my work at the television station and started to dip my toe in the waters of the radio station because, you know, it, that, that's just the way it had to be. But the second year, it, I did not find the television station work fulfilling. It didn't go anywhere. Nobody could see it. It just, it didn't do it for me. But the radio station was so immediate, so much going on. I mean, the difference between producing one half hour program a day and a couple of other programs over the course of a semester versus being on for 16, I think it was 14 or 15 hours. And then we had to expand to avoid losing the license, but that's a not losing, having to share the license with Syosset. Right. That seemed so much more immediate and fulfilling that I was just hooked. So I started working on the remotes. Then I became the remote chief and one thing led to another. And I, in addition to being the first Freshman, grant and aid, I was one of the first people to give the grant back by the time he was a sophomore. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Where, where were the TV facilities at the time? You know, as I hear these stories, I believe the TV facilities were in the bottom of Memorial Hall in the place that the radio station eventually occupied. You had to go down that ramp mm-hmm. into the TV studio. And that was the, the main color studio and control room were in that space. So the ceilings were only, what, six feet, seven feet tall? Did not make for great television. Made it easier for me to do lightning lighting because the ladder didn't have to be too big, but still um, not very effective for TV. And I believe that's the same room from what I hear people describing that the radio station ended up ended up in later on because it was a very big space. Um, there was a black and white studio on the bottom level of uh, the commu- of, of Memorial Hall that was elsewhere, and but that was a very small studio with a couple of black and white cameras and small control room, and that's where the non-majors hung out. And the first thing I had to do was tech 
COM 10 while I took COM 11, which was your basic TV production course. Mm -hmm. So I was teching the class for non-majors at the same time I was taking the majors class with the same material. It's fairly complicated. Um, it worked out okay because the the <laughs> the biggest uh, the biggest charge was to make sure that nobody dropped the camera. That was my big job as the 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 student tech helping out in the classroom is make sure that nobody drops the camera. That 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 does seem important, and and given the level of technology we're at today, people must be wondering, well what would be the big deal? But I imagine that the equipment was much larger and heavier and more fragile at the time. Yeah. The black and white was not so bad, but the studio cameras in the color studio were pretty substantial. Not well. Okay. So they didn't have, if you ever look at network programming, if you get the behind the scenes and you watch the automatic rollers that they have and how easy it is for them to glide across the stage. Yeah. We didn't have that. Everything was pretty manual. And you right. needed a second guy behind you to keep the cords in line to make sure you didn't run over a cord. But that's um, that was that. But yes, they, they did not want cameras on the floor. That was your, your big job. Right. Okay. So, so you show up at the station. Um, you've already met George. Um, were there training classes to get you prepared to be on the air? I, I know you talked about a number of your, your curriculum classes and the TV classes, but was there a, a training program to get you ready to be on the air? And you mentioned the announcing class and the clearance. What was involved with uh, getting your clearances? Well, the announcing class, you had to read and practice limericks and, and um, record your performance and give it to the chief announcer for his blessing. Um, that was pretty easy. The, the, um, remote training was learn as you go. Paul was, that really was knowledge that was handed down from chief to chief, right? So they taught you how to solder stuff, how to fix microphones, where everything went, which is very, ironically, my daughter is doing that same job for her college now out here in Salisbury, Maryland. Um, she is on their event tech team. And so she's learning how to wrap microphone cords, how to keep everything neat, which jacks go where, how to use a soldering iron. And that's all stuff that wasn't taught as curriculum. It was taught on a need to know basis. When something broke, they would take you in the back and say, hey, we got to go fix this. When you went out on your first remotes, you would come back with with the box and the bag, I remember them all. There was a gray square box with a VHC sticker on it, and there was a little gray suitcase. So you would leave with those two things, you would come back, and you'd have to put the stuff away in a certain order, right? So that the right. next guy through knew where to find everything. That was all just taught. It wasn't curriculum. You didn't get graded. You just had to do it. The engineering class itself was fascinating. You had to sit I don't remember how many sessions it was, but what you learned was how to work the board, what the different studios did. You may have even gotten into how the patch bay worked, but we didn't get a lot of practice on the patch bay. Right. Um, and I think your graduation was to do a station sign-on because remember, this is this is not a curriculum class. This is what you're doing for fun. This is where volunteers to work at the radio station got their so start. So... That's how you learn to be an engineer and you pass the test at the end by signing the station on and then you were good to go. You could get scheduled for um, engineering slots. 
because at the time, um, everything except the 10 to 2 a.m. slot had separate announcers and engineers. Um, So the engineer did his thing and the announcers, you had a show host and then you had the... um, the continuity host, for lack of a better word, but somebody who would come in and read the public service announcements and whatever in between. So your shifts were three people mm-hmm. until you got to the middle of the night. And then it was a combo deal. And it, people fought like crazy for that 10 to 2 a.m. slot. And I can, I can actually say that I never did a single changes show. That was just not my bag. It would stay up till two o'clock in the morning at the radio station was not my thing. For the first two years, I was commuting, so I really wasn't going to be doing that. Uh, But it was a great leverage tool because people who wanted the combo would do just about anything to get a show to do that. Hmm. And sign-on in those days, was it 2 p.m.? Is that right? I believe that that's correct because what happened during our four years is the FCC, the Friendly Candy Company, changed the rules And it said all Class D licensees that want to keep their full-time operation have to expand to be on the air a minimum of, and I want to say it was 16 hours. Let me see. 10 till 2 would be 10, 1, 2, 3, 4. Yeah, 16 hours a day, seven days a week. If you didn't do that, then anybody else who wanted to share that frequency with you could apply to the FCC and take half your time away. And we were not going to have that. So we expanded the broadcast hour, and I believe sign-on became 10 a.m. And at the direction of the president of the university, uh, that became uh, Hofstra Classics. Mm -hmm. And that show was born because um, that's what he wanted, and we needed programming to fill the 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. time slot. Right. That would have been President Schuert? Absolutely. Okay. Um, okay. So more, more chapters are are coming back together here. Um, oh, I wanted to go back to talking about the equipment, uh, about lugging them out for, for whether it's remote broadcast or sports broadcast. Um, those are pretty significant, uh, packages or, or, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, the container units, those were, those were not only, large in size, but they were pretty heavy, if I remember, if I'm thinking of the same type of equipment. No, what we did was very streamlined for the, uh, because think about this, right? For the radio basketball broadcasts, Mm -hmm. we would hook up to a phone line. So we would have a little five channel Sure Mixer, the magic, I don't even know if this is anywhere, it should be in the Smithsonian, the magic dial up telephone that had the plug in jack in the back and you had to lift one of the two uh, what would you call it? The, 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 the two little plastic pieces that came up from the receiver when you picked up the handle of the old dial telephones. Right. It left those two little pieces of plastic coming up. One of them was specially rigged. And when you wanted to go on the air, you pulled one of those pieces up and that's what put you on the air. And when you pushed it down, you were in sort of the audition kind of mode and you could talk over the telephone. But anyway, so we took the magic telephone we took some mic cables because we didn't have to go very far. You set the uh, the mixer up on the table and the two announcers are six feet away. Uh, we took a bunch of electric because you never knew where the electric was going to be and you had to plug in the mixer. 
Right. Uh, and then we had the emergency telephone repair kit. Because if you ordered telephone lines and they weren't there when you got there, you had to think of something because the show must go on. Uh, did we ever have to, because statute of limitations is up, right? I, I can tell you <laughs> that we had a, we had to crib some phone lines in unique ways. Sport, uh, sports information directors at the own colleges were usually pretty helpful if you could reach with your phone line to, to their room, they'd let you pick a phone. If nothing else was going to work, and I believe we only had to do this once, um, we borrowed a payphone. I don't know that anybody was ever able to use that payphone again, but such <laughs> is life. The show went on. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, the, the, the necessity breeds uh, creativity and resourcefulness, I suppose. Right. So really we, they were, they were two suit suitcase, like old kind, old kind suit bag suitcases. There was nothing too right. enormous. One was a square box, maybe two feet wide, two feet long and a foot and a half high. And the other one was just like this little gray suitcase. We, we traveled very light for okay. the radio remotes. Yeah. I think I might be uh, mixing that up with the, with the remote Marty, uh, case which was uh, square and probably about you know, three feet by three feet, something like that. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, let's. Um, oh, and the the there's got to be a, a a name a word for that uh, for the plastic doohickey on on the telephone. That's I'm gonna have to go back and do some research later because that's yeah. I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. I can see it, but I can't remember. There there must be some sort of technical name for that. That's funny. I'm sure there is, but um, most people don't even. Most people that are listening to this probably don't even remember how to dial up a phone. Well, you know, it's one of those those things. I wish we could uh, we could have a call in survey and be like, call right now if you remember. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe um, in future podcasts, but yeah, it's and and this is my daughter. You know, because she has a small love of audio that's been developed over time. I had to teach her all of this, and it's amazing to sit and realize that since I got out of college the enormity of the changes in the communications industry itself. It's yeah. shocking. Yeah. Yeah. Things, things have definitely changed, but let's go back to the beginning. Do you remember your first time getting on the air, whether it's behind the board or, I mean, you talked earlier about that, that one um, uh, sports broadcast where you were sort of uh, sworn in out of necessity there, but do you remember the, the feeling of getting on the air? Do you remember uh were you excited? Were you nervous? What what was going on in your head as you were getting used to being on the air? Public speaking was never, you're probably figuring that out, was never a big deal for me. Um, so the announcing part really didn't spook me too much. And if I made a mistake, I was okay. You know, you go back, you cover it up. Uh, not that I would be proud of it, but you know, you try to do your best, but I, it didn't spook me. What did spook me was being an engineer. Because if you did something wrong on that side of the board, I, you know, the show all of a sudden isn't going on. And that was bad. So the, the, the biggest, the most fun and the biggest challenge was to do um, Sweet Olsen's show. Those polkas were fast. They ended hard. And he would bring the record in with like 30 seconds left. So that left you a minimal amount of time to queue up and get going. That was the best thing going. That was a rush to do that right. And uh, then there was one other engineering night that was phenomenal that where I, the, the, I felt a tremendous amount of satisfaction 
after a tremendous evening of stress, it was election night. Mm-hmm. And we did election night live and Sue Zizza had prepared maybe 50 actualities uh, on two huge reel-to-reel tapes. And she had the she had the cheat sheet. She knew where everything was and she knew when to call it up. And Jim Helfgott was the director. He was standing behind me. I was the technical director standing behind the board. Studio A was active. Studio B was active. People were switching. We had two remote crews out at different headquarters. And then we had all the actualities on the reel to reel. So they would shout out commands. Jim would say, all right, get actuality number 17 queued up. And he would help by counting the little white um, editing pieces of tape, the white tape between the, that would mark off the edits. And, and we would count it up and then try to get to the, to the right spot and test it out so that we knew we had the right one before we got called upon to do that. So you're managing the mics, you're managing that, and it was just a phenomenal night. And that was one of the nights where you're really proud of what you did because that was community service and that was what we were all about. We weren't doing national elections. We weren't even really doing state elections to the, uh, except for the extent that we were probably electing state officials that night. But everybody was live and local in Nassau County. We were live and local before they even invented the term. Wow. I'm just trying to get my head wrapped around that idea of counting the splice tape to figure out where you were in the actualities, because I'm thinking of the reel to reel machines when I was there in the nineties and there was a, there was a digital counter, but that probably wouldn't have been the case at that point. So you had to physically watch how many splices went through. That seems my, my, my stomach's in a knot just thinking about it. Yeah, it, you know what? I don't want to make myself out to be some kind of crazy hero. I had Jim's help. And, uh, you know, it, it, if we had to uh, tell Sue to vamp for a little bit while we found it, that was okay, too. But wow. it was uh, it was quite a production. The And, and let me just sidetrack, because this is one thing that I, I want to uh, mention. One of the big projects that we did, we packed the little theater with uh, senior citizens from Nassau County. And we did a live radio drama. This is way back in the day, sponsored by A&P Coffee. So everybody that came got a little coffee mug with our, with the VHC logo on one side and A&P on the other. And there is still, I still have one and there are pictures of it floating around because I've sent them. Um, but that was an amazing feat for its time. Nobody was doing live radio drama like that. And these, the, the people that came loved it. And, uh, it, it made, uh, it made some nice press at the time. And it was a, it was a fun event. That's, that's very cool. So it was the, the production itself was upstairs in the actual little theater. And then the sounds running down to the actual station in the basement. Right. We broadcast it live. We did the performance live and that it was it was just a, a good deal and we did it in the dark we had the studio uh the the audience lights were down so you only had lights on the stage so you could see the announcers coming up not in costume just announcers coming up and uh the sound effects guy was doing sound effects in the corner banging the coconuts or whatever it was that he was doing <laughs> so it was all it was all very um what's in um engrossing isn't the right word, but it was an experience all the way around for 
people who were sitting, you were watching audio drama instead of watching television where all the thinking is done for you. People like audio drama the same reason they like reading books or listening to stories instead of watching TV because you have to use more of your brain to fill in the blanks of the story. So um, it was very well received. And not only listening to it using all of your senses, but but actually producing it, being being the people writing the levels and, and making all the connections, you've got to use every part of your brain to make sure that that's working. That's That's amazing. It was a lot of fun. Um, maybe the next time you get Sue in, because it was it was her baby. She did the production on it, and I just my job was to PR the heck out of it. And I think I was the one that figured out how to do the coffee mugs. But I, it, you know, it's team play. That was one of the great lessons about working at the radio station. There's nothing that I can personally take credit for un- unless I actually physically push the button. Everybody was so supportive and so helpful and just so damn friendly. It was the greatest job I ever had. Being station manager, I'm still looking for something like that all these years later. Amen. Um, speaking of the teamwork, speak, speaking of the people who were helpful, who else? You've mentioned a number of names. Uh, but who else was helpful as you were getting started? You talked about meeting uh, George Musgrave. Uh, I imagine you must have met Jeff Krause early on. Who else was around as you were getting started uh, as a freshman and a sophomore? Uh, the station manager when I got there was Steve Findell, and Linda Dayleader was his program director. But that was my first year, or, or maybe even the second year, and I wasn't all the way in yet. It was... Um, Jim Helfgott and Steve Graziano that were uh, station manager and program director, respectively, the year before I became station manager. And Jim Jim taught me a lot about uh, how to do a good job as station manager and a lot of life lessons. And they were a lot like what Sue and I became. Jim wasn't the best audio producer. He, he didn't claim to be. He, you know, that wasn't his bag just like me. And so he did a lot of the engineering and the behind the scenes and some of the staffing stuff. And he left Steve to do a lot of the programming stuff, the same way Sue took care of 98 to 99% of all the programming needs that we had while I was there. And she did a magnificent job with everything that she did and made a career out of it, which is even more amazing. We were doing podcasts before we even knew there were podcasts. Right, and she just uh, um, released another audio drama with the uh, it was one of the New York festivals. I, it, the name just popped out of my head, oh, but Tribeca. Yeah, Tribeca. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, just just still doing really stellar and and challenging work, and and that's that's a testament to to who she was and and the things that she learned while you were all at uh, the station in those days. Yep. And the other, the other people that I knew, the sports director when I was there was Steve Silverman. And he used to, he was the guy that worked with Todd Ant and I during that period of time. And a name you should know was my news director, Rasa Kay was. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I like to joke that I was her first radio boss way back when, but I, don't ever tell her that. I said that. <laughs> we'll cut that. Um, Mike Kluger was great coming up 
he wanted to know everything he needed to know about engineering and then made that into a, a two-decade career in New York Public Radio. Um, I was also from the era of Karen Hamble, uh, Karen Hamble Montebano. She was great, would do anything that you asked and do it well. A wonderful radio voice too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to go too deep because there'll be a bunch of people that I forget to mention and I, I don't want to do that. So... Um, the next question is, I think you've sort of answered this, but it's about when you started to feel comfortable at the station, not necessarily on the air, but when did you feel like you got the sense of you're splitting time between the TV responsibilities and your coursework and the station? When do you feel like, do, 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 was there a moment or a time or a period where you're like, yep, this is, this is where I need to be. This is where I want to be. The more I got involved with the radio station, uh, the harder the bug bit. So I wasn't, I was doing remotes at the beginning, but I wasn't traveling much. Um, I also used to go out uh, with Karen to do the Hempstead Town Hall concerts on Sundays. And that was right. a joy to set up too, because you're miking live music. With, and there's, there's nothing better in the world, right? Um, and then I started doing the jazz shows and after a while, it just became like, you know, why do I want to spend more time doing the TV stuff when I could be doing this? And it just, it just kind of lures you in. The, the, uh, and the other funny story is there was no way to get college credit. You couldn't take any courses in radio. I don't know if anybody else has spoken to this. At the time I went, there was one radio class, COM 13. That's it. You learned how to sign the radio station on and you learned the history of radio and some other stuff. But basically, that was the extent of the radio offerings. Everything else you did in radio was on your own time and voluntary. It was crazy. That's an interesting question that we'll, we'll, we'll have to dig around and, and see when did those radio production courses actually begin because when i went through again in the 90s uh, the basic radio production course was com 21 and then there were upper level courses uh that the multi-track producing and things like that but i wonder when those exactly started when jeff managed to get the station uh, the the university to agree to that I don't know. I bet Sue would know more about it. And so would Nancy Kaplan. I forgot to mention, Nancy Kaplan was my television professor way back then, and we've stayed in touch since. Um, but she would have an idea of what that evolutionary process was as well. But, oh. and, and, and we started, they did a writing for radio class in my last year. See, because the other, <laughs> it's another funny story. As a comm major, they had it sequenced out for you to graduate. And the only way to do it was to take this series of television classes because there were no radio classes. And you had to leave a huge block of time in your senior year to take the advanced level television production class. Well, because the way I set my schedule up, I didn't leave enough time for that, nor did I have the interest. Mm -hmm. So they had introduced a new radio course called Writing for Radio. And I was going to have to take that course and some other funky course if I was going to graduate. And that puts us, that puts us in 1981. So whatever happened after 1981, because we still weren't out of the basement. Right. And that was another problem is we didn't have facilities. Where were you going to teach? Stations on 18 hours a day 
and all the facilities are used to keep the station on the air. Where are you going to teach anybody anything? Huh. And I assumed when you mentioned the writing for Radio Course, I assumed that would have been Jeff. No. Huh. Tell me a little bit about meeting Jeff and what it, what, what sort of atmosphere he created for, for people coming in. Because I imagine there were, there were very high standards, but it was also... How do we get new people to come in? How do we attract someone who's who's lined up for TV to spend more time at the station? Um, I don't think that we worried about recruiting people from TV. There were plenty of people who just wanted to do radio. There were community people who wanted to do radio. There were people in high school that wanted to do radio. And then there were people in who weren't even comm majors who were interested in radio because you couldn't be a non-student and work in TV. You had to be a student. You had to be a comm major in order to touch the equipment. So there you were. Um, so I, I was, I wasn't solicited. I just kind of slid in and kept working at it until I was, um, until I, I, I made my way to a leadership position. But meeting him for the first time is absolutely intimidating. You walk through the gauntlet because that, that's the way I would refer to it. You open the Memorial Hall upstairs office door. There are desks to the left, desks to the right. Um, and they're lined up a certain way so that it's this big aisleway down to the center desk that's facing the doorway. And behind that sits the man with the beard and the, and the pipe. Um, mm-hmm. And so the first time you meet him, you have to walk through everybody else to get up there and speak with him. And he has that deep professional radio voice. And um, it was a little bit intimidating, but then you find out that he really had your best interest in minds. And um, what I liked about him is he gave you just enough rope to hang yourself and then he would come and rescue you every time. He liked you to be independent and do things and come up with ideas. It was very rare that he would shoot something down at the beginning. Only when you got in trouble later on would he come and say, you know, maybe that wasn't the best idea. Let's uh, let's see what we could do. I've gotten this sense of from, from talking to Sue and, and to a number of other people that at that time, the radio station was was flying somewhat under the radar of the university's awareness and that Jeff had cultivated this, this sort of, we're going to do what we're going to do and we're going to do it well. Um, but we're going to try not to antagonize the university, at least until I think as Sue said, you know, you either had to blow it up and make it big or, or keep it real super small. So it wouldn't be interfered with. Um, did you get a sense as a student that Jeff was uh, sort of pushing things that way, or is that something that that maybe you would have understood a little bit later on? That's it's a very accurate statement to say that we were under the radar. Um, I think the push was to make television bigger and better, and to draw more money and people into the television side. And Jeff was really happy not having to deal with the administrative bureaucracy that would be required to level up the radio station at that moment in time. Mm-hmm. What he knew he had, I believe in my heart that what he knew he had was a real live functioning radio station that performed remarkably well because we weren't like 
there were a lot of college radio stations and still are a lot of college radio stations around that play music that cater to the college communities that they serve, right? Not a whole lot of them, which may be why we won all those Marconi Awards, not a whole lot of them do the kind of community service and news programming that we do. And that's what he taught us. The technical skills, the analytical skills to produce stuff that mattered. And that's what he knew he had. And he knew he had an operation that was that could be heard by millions of people every day. Whereas the radio station, it played to the Memorial Hall cafeteria. And at that time, it didn't even get across the street to the student dorms. Why the university didn't see the value in that, I couldn't tell you, but they didn't. And that was okay with him. He wasn't going to fight it. He was just going to do what we could. And we were going to raise funds to do the things that we needed to do or wanted to do. That way we didn't have to bother the bigwigs to try and because they would attach conditions is my understanding. And again, I was not privy to those big conversations, but I think that was the game plan at the time. I mean, you know, we gave President Schuert the four hours of classical music he wanted when we had to expand, and that was a good thing. That kept us in his good graces, and that was important. Definitely, definitely. To uh, to keep the, the, the full license and to keep the autonomy for the rest of the programming to accept that four hours of classical. And then I know it was expanded a little bit later on, but um, yeah, that definitely made sense. So... You, you've kind of answered this already, but but I like to to wrap up with this uh, this consideration here. Obviously, Hofstra Radio uh, meant a great deal to you at the time. Still does the relationships, the friendships, the the practical experience. We can look back from thirty thousand feet here and look back at it. But as you're whether it's that first time you walked down the stairs and you met George, or as you're getting settled there. At the beginning, uh, what did you hope Hofstra Radio would mean for you? I wanted an opportunity to learn the business. And um, we did that to a certain extent. I learned what the nuts and bolts of working at a radio station might feel like. Um, And the new experiences, that was just a bonus. And to manage as the station manager to manage all of those people, I learned more about, about people in, in those four years than at any other time in my life, how to, I I, I don't want this to sound corny, right? But how to persuade people to do things that they might not want to do, how to foster a team atmosphere when you don't even have a salary, we couldn't fire these people. We needed them. So you had to get them to work at that radio station because they wanted to be there. And that was the big difference. If you were working in TV, you were working because you were going to get a grade and you were going to graduate. If you were working at the radio station, you were working because you wanted to play radio with everybody else that was there. You were there because you wanted to be there. And that's a huge difference. So what did, what did I learn? And was it what I thought I was going to learn? It was way more than I thought I was going to learn. I, I, a lot of the lessons I learned about people and promotions 
and building a brand and all that jazz has stuck with me for all these years. And so did my love of jazz music, by the way. Um, so it was more than I thought. I, I When I walked into the radio station for the first time, I didn't really know the segregation between TV and radio. And then I came to love radio so much that I really didn't care what happened to my grant and aid and the rest of what was going on in TV. Not that I didn't love the people, the great people that were there, but I did not get the same satisfaction doing that as I did from being in the radio station. I think it's so powerful what you said a moment ago about the people who were at the station really wanted to be there. And that was the prime motivation. That's just that that really encapsulates a lot of of the things we've been talking about in this series. So the people really wanted to be there. It was their passion. That's it. That that that's exactly what and when you go back to these radio station dinners, uh you know, when we have the anniversary ones and people who haven't seen each other maybe in a while. I mean, I regret that I live five and a half hours away by car. I don't go up to New York as often as maybe I should or could. But when we see each other after all these years, the time just melts away. And you're talking to people from way back in the day and you're catching up on stuff like you like you haven't missed a beat. And that's the great thing. That's, that's part of everybody being a team and everybody wanting to be part of that team. It's a wonderful thing. Scott, this was, this was spectacular. This was so great. Um, thank you for taking the time and sharing these stories. And as we discussed earlier, uh, there's a lot more stories. There's a lot more to uncover. And now, now I've got homework. Now I've got to go look some stuff up or ask some more questions. But uh, let's do this again sometime. This was great. That'd be great. Thanks so much, Brian. And thanks for what you're doing for everybody.